I'm sat in the dark in the tin box of our camper van, eyes wide open, windows ajar. The visual cues of what's taking place around me are long gone, and only sound joins me now. Which is handy, because this is a podcast after all. A pair of tawny owls are intermittently calling to one another from the trees around me, making contact before their hunt in the night ahead. A little further away, flocks of cranes are trumpeting from the safety of a large lake. One of the best sounds in nature, in my humble opinion, and synonymous with wild wetlands. But the star performer? Eerily rumbling through the darkness, making my hair stand on end, is this. Red deer. It's the rut, and these boys are bellowing, loudly. Vocal intimidation is part of their arsenal. If that doesn't work, they'll be locking antlers and battling it out for the rights to mate with a harem of females. Although they're a little preoccupied right now, they're usually part of a team of four-legged tree trimmers, helping to restore the naturally open landscape of this waterlogged world. But I'll have to come back to that, as amongst the excitement and through the open window, I'm sorry to say that a slightly less welcome noise has joined the party. Mosquitoes. The roar of red deer might be intimidating for some, but it's the buzzing of these little bloodsuckers that fills me with fear. We're an important part of the ecosystem. 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 I'm James Shooter, host of the Rewild Podcast, and this is Lil Wildermosa. It's my first time in Denmark, and I've enjoyed exploring this fascinating country. So far, the watery worlds of the West have stood out the most. Parties of Wimble are constantly on the move, heading south after a Scandinavian summer. Bearded tits are flocking together in the reed beds, and there's a constant babble of greylag geese, a few thousand strong, which never seem far away. I had the privilege of watching young white-tailed eagles attempting to hunt them on the wing, that their half-hearted attempts just made it seem like they were enjoying flushing them every few minutes. Further north, on the opposite coastline of the country, I've arrived at Lil Wildermosa, which translates to Little Wild Bog. Ironic, really, as there's nothing little about this site. It's Denmark's largest protected area, at just under 8,000 hectares, and holds northwestern Europe's largest raised bog. After escaping the mosquitoes inside my van, I'm meeting Thomas Christensen, who works for the Arja V. Jensen Foundation, who run this site. We've got three areas to cover. The southern section, which is the intact raised bog. The middle section, which is where historic peat extraction has taken place and where most of the restoration efforts are focused. Then finally, the northern section, which is the driest part of the site. It's here where we're heading out on a mini safari to try and spot some of the large herbivores that have been reintroduced. You are now entering the Holy Land. <laughs> I like the sound of that. We're driving into uh, Tofte Forest now, um, the, the natural area of where the first initial part that we move into now, that's the, uh, uh, that's the forested uh, land with, with opened, uh, open spots in between, the 2,000 hectares of that. And it's, it's only about 900 hectares that's covered by forest. The rest is open shrubland or even uh, uh, grasslands. 
I think with um, with landscapes like this and and kind of driving or walking through them knowing that there's big stuff out there that's part of the excitement yeah you don't necessarily have to to see them it's just that feeling that that you might you yeah, know it yeah. gives that sense of yeah excitement and just a slightly heightened uh... as we come up here and we'll turn at sort of the right hand corner here but if you look out towards the, the east uh, you'll see one of our viewing towers just standing outside so people although they can't just move in here and the public can't just move here on their own they they have chances of looking into the area for some of these viewing towers and that's part of what we do in terms of extension as well yeah um, you can see it's, it's oh, yeah, standing under one yeah and that's sort of a trademark for the foundation that we built these uh, huge, big uh, viewing towers. Yeah, that's great. I yeah, I always go back and forth in my mind between the need for not peopleless um, landscapes, but yeah, undisturbed areas, yeah. and weighing that up against access and allowing people to see and experience it for themselves. Yeah, it's a hard one to know exactly what's right to do isn't it i mean i think in the way the world is we need areas like this actually where where they they are undisturbed for the vast majority of the time yeah. and they, to just al allow it and yeah i guess providing infrastructure like viewing platforms like organized visits where you can still come in but it's but it's you know controlled is is really important actually i think that's a good balance to have yeah and i think if if we need to train the public and uh, that people will actually understand what it is we're doing and, and, and the need for doing things like this. We do need to give, grant some sort of access, but it could be like uh, what, what we can do here, that we can do something around the, the circumference mm. and they will have a look inside there. Oh. <laughs> ah, here wow! Here you got the four-legged plows. <laughs> Three wild boar just tails up, running off. <laughs> Brilliant. This woodland is utterly beautiful. Huge veteran oak trees with open patches of grassland, now studded with juniper, holly and hawthorn coming through. Acorns are continually dropping out of the sky, so much so that I consider a helmet might have been a good addition to the day. This is a landscape shaped by historic hunting grounds, adored by the counts that used to live here. In fact, the boar were reintroduced by the landowner of the time in 1926. The fence around this section, all 2,000 hectares of it, is the only reason they're allowed to stay. Denmark gets very twitchy about free-roaming boar because of the large pig farming industry and fear of African swine flu spreading. The scattered boar have left behind moguls of turf and earth where they've been rootling about looking for food. They're the rotivators of nature. Some call it damage, and yes, you can see why their effects might be unwanted if they were to break into a golf course but this disturbance is good for the ground. They rough up the surface and allow pockets of bare soil for seeds to infiltrate, sometimes offering the only way in through thick mats of grass. They encourage diversity of the plant life on the forest floor. Right next to this are the first hints of some slightly larger animals, bison. They have been here too. Unsurprisingly, they've also been leaving behind some bison-sized pats of dung. Now you probably don't normally get too close to animal poo, 
yet I find myself kneeling down next to this lot to appreciate the wealth of life inside. Dung beetles tunnel further in to get away from my increasingly close face, and maggots of various species of flies are wriggling about on the surface. It might not be everyone's cup of tea, but these are the building blocks of the food chain. A poo platter, so to speak. It feeds the critters and feeds the soil. I suddenly realise I'm probably looking a bit strange to Thomas, who I've just met, and decide it's time to get back in the vehicle in the hope of finding the culprits. Oh yeah, wow. That's such yeah, a, yeah. an eerie sight, actually, the, yeah. the, the shape of them coming out of the darkness of the... And just sitting there now, resting, wow. ruminating. Oh, a few young ones as well. We've got six calves this year. You see four of them now running, and they form these little uh, youngster gangs. <laughs> uh, actually, there are five of them together now in a small group. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's so cool to see. The bison have been brought in here to add another layer of disturbance to the forest. They damage the trees, which creates opportunities for fungi and insects to move in. They transport seeds in their fur, and they open up niches in the ground by wallowing. At up to a ton, even their hoof prints have an effect. These four-legged giants can munch around 30 to 40 kilos of grass a day, subduing the monoculture effect it often has, and allowing other vegetation a chance. What a team, and an absolute privilege to see up close. It's hard to leave, but there's much more to see. We drive out of the forest and towards the middle section. Here the scars of peat mines stripe across the land. The flatness of this landscape means that to really take it in, you need height. And as Thomas hasn't offered to get me on his shoulders, it's up the 10 metre fire watchtower instead. Oh yeah, very cool. You guys should see the old snipe going over on this. Yeah, yeah. I think it is. Oh, so these are all the kind of peak furrows. They are, they are. Um, I think we refer, well, if you make the direct translation, we refer to them as digging lines. Okay, I mean, that, yeah, uh, that makes sense. Yeah. So here you, we've had a peat layer of three to four meters, and this has all been mined. So they actually dug down more or less to the bottom of, of, uh, uh, of the peat layer, oh. to the old seabed beneath. What you can actually see here is that if you look in that direction, um, those hills over there, well, we are in Denmark, so, so we call them mountains. <laughs> yeah, um, <fair> enough. <laughs> but these are Mulbjau and, and Gulhoi, um, but they, they are sort of, uh, um, they're moraine hills uh, back from the last ice age, and they form sort of a barrier towards the sea. You have to see just on the other side of that. Ah, right, okay. And, um, but water could enter to the north and to the south. So this area in here became sort of a lagoon. And as uh, the, 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 uh, the ice disappeared from the area and the old uh, seabed started racing again uh, after losing the weight of the ice, then you, you had this shallow lagoon forming. And it, uh, then reeds started developing in here, became uh, more or less uh, a mire after that. And then two, two and a half thousand years ago, um, the, the race box started forming uh, with, with the growth of, of the sphagnum mosses. Oh, okay. And so a, 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 a raised 
bark like this, uh, it grows by two, two and a half, maybe even three millimeters per, per year. <laughs> it's not a quick I, process, no, is it? No, it isn't. <laughs> this unique habitat is reliant on sphagnum mosses, both in life and in death. On the top layer is life. Green, red and yellow mossy sponges, capable of holding around 20 times their dry weight in water. They're described by some as habitat manipulators, as the water they retain can influence the composition of habitats around them. You need it to be protected so it doesn't get infected, you could almost say, by nutrients. Uh, it, it's, it, it, uh, it's, it's a very acid uh, type of uh, natural area, and it's, um, it, so it has to receive only rainwater. And what we're trying to do in, in, when, we, when we conserve it is that we try and protect uh, the, uh, the, the loss of water from the, from the, uh, the uh, race bog itself. Below the surface is death. As the vegetation at the bottom of the pile starts to die off, it doesn't decompose thanks to the waterlogged anaerobic conditions. Essentially, the lack of oxygen stops microbial life breaking it down. What it does start to do is compress. Over many, many years and more and more layers of vegetation above, the plant matter gets squished and smooshed together and eventually forms peat. Those aren't technical terms, by the way. A fantastic carbon store, whilst it remains undisturbed and wet. Unfortunately, the natural value of this bleak-looking landscape has been overlooked in the past and instead manipulated for use by humans. Standard. Well, it started, the drainage started, we, have a, we had a development in Denmark that we lost some of our land to the Germans back in, in, in the 1800s. And some, some people said that what, what, what we lost to the outside world, we should gain on our inside, in our inside world. And so we, we've started uh, draining and, and farming areas that has otherwise been, been left untouched before. And certainly this was also part of it. There were big plans, uh, government-supported schemes to, to try and see if they, they could drain the whole uh, entire bog area and start farming it. And that would require a lot of lime. Uh, you have limes in the hills just nearby, so it could have been done. Unfortunately, they didn't uh, succeed with it in time before we got wiser and started protecting it. So these these uh, digging channels, right. they're currently three to four metres deep of yeah. water now yeah, yes, where it yeah. would have been peaked so and then you have to sort of the the, the 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 ridges in between each of these lines and they've now become overgrown with reeds and with birch and willow mm. and uh, but, but you should imagine you uh, if you were here 25 years ago this was an open industrial landscape it was brown and there was dust clouds everywhere. <laughs> and the tower that we're standing in now is called the Fireman's Watch Tower. So here you've had a fireman sitting on watch more or less 24 hours uh, really? every day, looking to see if there was any fire building up because that would really be a disaster if, if, when you're in a, a peat area like this. And, uh, and sometimes they did have fires here, but wow. they managed to, to extinguish them before they become really serious. And um, and now, just 25 years later, we're looking at something that looks like a, a really beautiful natural area. It and, does, yeah. And we have a really big amounts of water birds, both breeding and, and uh, just migrating birds coming through uh, every year. And so how do you, how do you, it's an interesting dynamic, because I suppose this habitat as it is wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the 
you know, the, the lakes, the, the small lagoons and things like that, is the hope to turn this back into a, a more, well, raised bog, essentially. Yeah, yeah. You'd be forgiven for thinking that trees coming into a bare landscape is a good thing. But that's not the case here. If trees are able to grow on a raised bog, it's a sign of poor condition. The bog has become too dry, nutrients may have crept in, or the acidity has neutralised. The trees then further degrade that habitat by removing even more water from the ground below. Draining the land started the degradation here, but perhaps the most damaging activity has been the harvesting of peat. It was being harvested mainly for, for energy purposes in, in the beginning and we had a big cement factory just nearby that required a lot of energy and so they were, uh, they were certainly behind a lot of the uh, industrial scale uh, exploitation of, 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 the, of the whole area and they were using big machinery. So at that time uh, and up until uh, about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the, the middle section of Little Vilmosa looked like um, a huge mining area. Uh, it was just dark brown, covered in dust and, then, and big machines. Red deer and moose, or European elk, as some of you may know them as, have been brought into this section to help control the tree growth. They have free reign to munch, nibble, chomp and chew as much willow and birch as they can manage. It's a deer's dream. Livestock are also used in some areas, but their hope is for their numbers to be reduced over time as their wild counterparts grow in number. It's important to note here that rewilding at this stage, in this location, has some trade-offs to think about. The three sections, whilst thousands of hectares in size, are fenced. This is to allow the reintroduction of the large herbivores and make sure the browsing and grazing work is utilised in the key areas. These barriers bring their own issues, not least the inability of larger animals to move in or out of those areas freely. Thomas tells me that they believe the area in front of us can support around a thousand red deer before their positive disturbance starts tipping back towards a negative impact. If we don't have wolves or any other big predator coming into the area, we will have to do a lot of calling by that time. And it's difficult in an area like this. It's flat, it's uh, hard to access it, and you've got uh, visitors, many visitors in the middle area where we'll have to do that calling. But then we have the, the Conservation Act for the area also specifies that we, we have to look at ways how we can combine the existing three uh, fences into just one big fence of, of uh, more than, uh, uh, 7,000 hectares. So there's a lot of challenges ahead and I can't tell you exactly how we're going to do it and when we're going to do it, but certainly we are going to do it. Granted, fences aren't ideal, but if it gets to the point where all three sections are combined, that's a huge area now functioning more naturally than it would be without them. Perhaps Danish legislation will change one day, and even the full boundary fence will be able to come down, allowing the large herbivores to spread beyond Lil Vildemosa. I'm sure that's the dream. That said, not all animals have been respecting these man-made boundaries. In fact, the reserve has recently been getting a fairly special visitor. We could have, for example, a, uh, a family of wolves living in here. That could uh, probably help us a lot. Would that ever be a possibility? Or Yeah, at the yeah. moment. Well, we'd, well, I can't promise you that I can show you a wolf. I've been here two years now, but we have a wolf living in, in the area to the south. Just a single wolf who came here. Uh, he came here about two, two and a half years ago, and he's been living there ever since, inside that fence. Mm. And, uh, inside the fence. Inside the fence of four thousand hectares. So how? And he he just uh, he preys on, on on the on the red deer and uh, and the wild boar that we have there. 
stupid question, but how, how did he get inside the fence? He jumped the fence. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, it right. was a two and a half meter high fence. Well, part of it was at that time was was um, was uh, an old stretch of only two only two meters, but he jumped that. <laughs> wow! Brilliant. So if they want to get in when they get closer to this area they can get in they can and that in. would be an advantage to you guys yeah yeah and well as, as wolves are now spreading in denmark as well we have a population of more than uh, 30 wolves in denmark at the moment uh creating uh, a lot of debate as well mm -hmm. uh, but um we hope that we will we will have more wolves coming up our way this is one of the places where we would be happy to see them of course yeah we head back down the fire watchtower and further south towards the intact raised bog walking through a beech wood Parties of siskin are up in the canopy, twittering away, and woodpeckers seem to be calling from most directions. Thomas has something slightly more niche to show me, though. We're just standing here now looking at one of these old beeches. Uh, it's, um, it's a tree that where half of the crown has fallen down in, in a storm recently. And we had these researchers coming out, can we just have a peek? Because they wanted to see if, if they could find Stella's moss scorpion. And it's, it's, it's one of the species that is uh, very significant for this place. And they found it. Uh, it was living in there. In, in, normally they're found in the height between six and nine meters in, in, in these old hollows in, 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 in uh, broadleaf trees. And where you've had water penetrating in, you have this sort of black uh, tree mulch inside. And that's where they like to live. And um, then at a certain stage, they become too, too many. And like you do with your teenagers at home, you just kick some of them out or they, uh, maybe they just want to get uh, away from their parents. Then they attach themselves to mosquitoes and fly out. <laughs> I, I don't believe and it. That's true. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, it's a one-way ticket. Uh, so, uh, so the insect airways uh, won't provide a return <laughs> ticket. Uh, and then they, hopefully they'll find a new place to settle. So, so they literally cling on to the legs of mosquitoes to get a free ride yeah. into a new territory. Yeah, it does. That's incredible. I mean, I question the value of mosquitoes sometimes, but yeah, that but offers one thing, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> I told you they were an important part of the ecosystem. Mind blown though, right? Through the trunks, right at the edge of the wood, is another tower. This one is 18 metres high. Six flights of stairs on the edge of forest and bog. <laughs> what a reveal. Yeah. And now you come up to the the real, really big pearl of, of this whole area. Wow. That's some transition from yeah. thick beech forest to this. In front of us is a huge expanse of open bog. It's a stark contrast to the 180 degrees behind me. In the skies above, Seven or eight hooper swans are passing through, and in the far distance a golden eagle soaring, a rare and privileged sight in Denmark. It's easy to look down below and consider it bleak, and in fairness, this habitat is fairly species poor, but it does support a range of specialist fauna and flora, and its real importance is what it stores, carbon and water. Beyond the browsers and grazers, water is one of the main rewilding tools here. By rebalancing the water table, the team at Lil Vildemosa have managed to restore bog, lake and forest with just one main action, the blocking of ditches and drains. It's stopped water escaping from the main raised bog. It's refilled three lakes that have been emptied 
one of which I spied an otter porpoising on, by the way. And it's also opening up niches in the forest by killing and uprooting some of the larger trees. This is a great source of deadwood and has the added benefit of creating favourite wallowing spots for bison and boar in the shallow pits created by the unearthed root plates. Instability brings stability to the wider ecosystem. Bringing water back is probably the easy part when compared to revegetating the bog with the plants that should be there. We've worked together with the nature agency and, and, and even some of the, the other landowners in the area. Uh, we worked to see if we could, we could uh, make small dams uh, and, and small basins actually and introduce spikenum mosses into those by collecting samples uh, in the local area and uh, putting them out in, in these areas. And uh, this was done as part of uh, an EU life project that, that was uh, um, used to, to actually restore a lot of the, the former uh, depleted areas. And then just recently, uh, working with a, a researcher called Metarisa, we, we've tried to, to see if we could do something that they've done in, in Canada as well. Uh, we, we only just take the top layer, the, 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 the layer affected by, by farming, we've scraped that off and, and uh, then we have uh, spread spagnum, fresh, uh, pure spagnum uh, samples uh, uh, using a, a top dresser machine from, from a nearby golf course. And we put, uh, we put out in a thin layer and then covered it in, in by straw later on to protect it from drying out and, and, and to keep the moisture content. And that means that that's a less wet uh, way of doing it. Um, and then we, we need to see if, if, if that will be more successful. The first trials we did, uh, for at least for, for, for the first 10 years, have, have not looked very successful, but it actually looks like now they are starting to prove that there, might, there will be some results. It just proves that time. Time. Time, time is the big thing, for sure. It's always exciting to see a landscape getting wilder. And even more thrilling is to hear of its potential to increase in size too. The word on the grapevine is that the Danish government is looking to see what they can do in terms of conserving or saving part of lowland areas with peaty soils. It sounds highly likely that they'll be buying neighbouring land here to preserve peatland and further raise the water table themselves. Once that's done, restrictions will be put in place so these functions can't be reversed and they will then look to sell the land again at a discounted price. Thomas and his team will be very interested when that happens. Whilst preparing for my visit, I came across the website for the Lil Wildermosa Centre, an NGO which acts as the main visitor hub for the site. It looked amazing. I couldn't wait to explore it. So after a quick lunch of rye bread, boiled eggs and a few cups of coffee with Thomas, I was really looking forward to meeting Jacob, the chief ranger and centre manager. This is a NGO, so it's not built to make money. It's built to make knowledge. So we want to have people getting knowledge about the nature. We want to get people to have an really interest in visiting the area after they visit the center. And then we think that if you know about the nature, you'll protect it, yep. if you have the knowledge. The people of Denmark are moving more and more into bigger cities. And that means that they kind of, they're losing their connection to nature. And also if we wanted to regain that connection, we have to make it uh, we have to make it special to visit the nature. We have to make it easy to visit the nature. And also we have to make the knowledge about the nature. Uh, we have to give that to, 
to the Danish population in a way they understand and it's easy to understand. Every detail of this visitor centre has been thought about so that even when you're inside, you're connected to the outside. The building is shaped like a long brown peat brick, a nod to the cultural importance to people of the past. Guarding the entrance is a stunning five metre high, rusted metal sculpture of a big bull moose, something that I think would look pretty neat in my front garden too. Even the toilets are adorned with wildlife wallpaper. Plus, when you shut the doors, speakers erupt with the corresponding sounds. As I curiously stepped in and out of each bathroom, I probably looked a bit odd to the lady at the front desk. I decided I liked the trumpeting crane toilet the best. You could also choose from bellowing stags or hooping hooper swans. The centre also has one of those very dangerous gift shops where they have a plethora of irresistible souvenirs for a wildlife lover. Naturally, I came away with three wildlife art posters, a glass bullfinch sculpture and a moose magnet. The lady probably warmed to me a little after that. The protection of Lille Vilmos has going on for years, but the, the certificate of now it's protected, the deal of it was in 2007, and that was probably because the big nature foundation out here, O.V. Jensen's Nature Foundation, make a big effort of buying up some of the land and wants to make out a nature area here. But also Lille Vilmos was lying in a small municipality and the mayor of the municipality was actually the man who started up the center here because he wants his municipality to be known for something. And what was the biggest thing he's got? That was the nature. That was the special thing about the municipality. As Jacob just about manages to pull me away from the gift shop, he's eager to show me the delights of the exhibition, half of which is inside and half outside. We walk through a corridor to the main hall. Now you can try yourself to go on the raised bar. <laughs> it's so cool. So. I love how everything is interactive. The floor wobbles beneath my feet to mimic a carpet of sphagnum. And sound is obviously going to play a large role here. The multi-sensory approach is much more effective than relying on sight alone, which of course, not everyone can rely on anyway. As we enter the main room, there's lots to take in. Huge digital information boards with powerful pictures from the past. Three interactive live cameras, where you can zoom in on the bird life with incredible detail. Technology originally designed for the Danish prisons, I'm told. Hooves, horns and jawbones for the kids to pick up and feel. There's even a simulator where you can soar like an eagle over the open bog. Technology is used incredibly well, but for learning purposes, perhaps nothing beats a bit of old school taxidermy and a very enthusiastic guide. Wild boars, we have them so we can tell that we have wild boars in the area, yeah. how big they are, and uh, so, and of course the moose. Well, yeah, yeah you get a real sense of size when they're towering over you like yeah. that, aren't they? Also, a lot of our guests actually ask, how about the animals? How can they move on the raised buck because it's so wet? Mm -hmm. But when you see these legs on the moose, you can understand that this animal is actually built to walk in, in wetland swamp. Yeah. It's built to walk in snow, ice. I also it's about that, uh, tell people that the long head is actually also that because of the length of the head, when the moose take in the cold air, mm. it will kind of warm up through the nose and it will be warm air that reaches the brain. 
Really? That means that the moose can detect a lot out of the air, even though the air is cold because it's warming up through the nose. Wow. And then when it reaches the brain, it's it's easier to to uh, recognize if there's anything in the air, danger, hormones, huh. anything. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. I didn't know that. So that's that's something like a design for an animal that lives where it's cold. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And as you say, yeah, just looking at it, seeing the length of it going yeah. all the way down, it's yeah, the perfect yeah. demonstration. And this big feet from a moose here, actually, I I tell a story about that. This foot of this big moose is actually the the weapon of the moose because it's it's not attacking with the antlers; it's attacking by by hitting you with the with the feet. Is that what they do? Like yeah, they, they box yeah, they're you kind almost. of boxing you. Oh wow! Yeah. And instead of using the antlers, yeah. the the red deer will use the antlers and, mm. and fight with those. Mm. Uh, the moose will will you the feet. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure I'd like to be kicked by a moose. No, no, no. As we head into the outside courtyard, it's obvious the focus here is learning through play. It's probably designed for kids, but I can't wait to get stuck in either. And then our newest thing is our water playground. And uh, from here, it just looked like four places where you can have fun. Yeah. But let's try to go into the first one here. And when we move into this area, we are actually going on top of a big map. And when I take school classes up here, they can actually on their own fill up the lakes, <laughs> empty them, fill them up again, and then they actually made the story of Lille Vilmos. It's so cool. What a great so, concept to get the kids right into the mix of restoration. Yeah. So, so we can fill it up, drain it, fill it up again, and they can learn how we have been done. <laughs> what we have been doing out here. When we want the farmland, and now we want to the farmland to be flooded so it will contain and and restore the carbon dioxide. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's such a great concept. It's all yeah. all about experiencing it for yourself because yeah. you can you can talk about these things, can't you? The yeah. the restoration of the lake and things yeah. like that, but to actually see it on a miniature scale is yeah. so much more effective. And then we have put in a little extra thing. We put in pumps so that the water we pump it up and let it run back. And that why that is why you can hear now we've got the sound of the water because we make the the little creek so that we have areas where the water is running fast we have area where we have water almost standing still so we can see different types of insects living here and school class can come here and have uh, education in what kind of animals do to what kind of environment yeah yeah that's brilliant the whole system here is one closed system, so we, when, when people are finished playing with the water, we collect it and then we send it round here, so it is kind of tap water there they are kind of playing with here. Uh, right. And then we also collect all the rainwater. Yeah, so, uh, so we try to do it as, as green as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So, uh, and that in itself is a good message to, to send out there. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So, and it will be running here and the pumps are running on, on electricity due by our solar panels. Beyond the immediate courtyard of educational entertainment, 
there's a wilder section for people to walk out into. It's amazing how fast the naturalness swallows you up, and you soon forget you're just a stone's throw from the play park, visitor centre, and school groups. And even amongst the scrubby vegetation, the interacting elements don't fizzle out, they just become more surprising. Right here, we can actually the sound of the animals in the buck area. And when I press the button, you will have the speaker here, but the sound will be coming from the whole area. It's sharp with Mosen's campfire, with the long hals and the cranes. It's also sound. He's saying that the bird will make noise when it's flying. Om foråret flyver de fleste forbi Mosen og fortsætter mod nordlige Skandinavien. Men i de seneste år stopper flere og flere træner op og så så ned. looking in the sky, <laughs> ready for them. Hør, det er deres sang, når de udfører deres pangestans inde i Mosen. Der er rigtig gang i den lige nu. The rat season. The plash jordan, the hens område. That is brilliant. <laughs> Surround sound wildlife. Again, I feel like I might want this for my garden. Hidden speakers echo the sounds of nature amongst the trees and bushes surrounding us. The quality really does make you feel like these animals are right beside you. On the face of it, bogs probably aren't the easiest ecosystem to get people fired up about. Yet if they were to take one step into this visitor centre, I guarantee they'll leave feeling educated and inspired. Guests aren't solely restricted to the confines of the visitor centre either. The great team here offer guided tours into the wilder Lil Vildemosa area. And that'll cement anyone's enthusiasm for this awe-inspiring site. I think that is because our guides out here are, they're, they are, they're kind of, they're, they, they, they like it. You can see the, you can see it in their eyes that they love this area. They're passionate when they tell the story. So, so if you get on a guided tour, that's no problem. You can feel it. And even though you don't see the animals, you will still have a great tour because you can feel that the guide is, is there for you and want to tell the story. We can, we can focus on more than just the big animals. We have been focusing a lot about the, the big five, the moose, the European bison, the, the boars, the red deers. But there is a lot of knowledge about the insects, about the plants, about the, yeah, how can you say, the construction of the, of the raised buck. It is amazing. But if you kind of branding the area to say, come and see how the mosses are growing, people are not going to come here. Yeah. People are going to come here when you have a moose, when you have big animals. But when they get here, some of them actually think that the big animals are nice and great, but it is amazing how many people that will go deeper and learn about the small things where there are great stories as well. The team here have obviously put a lot of work into making it a great space for young people to learn. And you don't need me to tell you how important that is. The movers and shakers of tomorrow. The visitor centre team have many school tours coming in from nearby municipalities. An incredible chance for young folk to learn outside of the classroom and spend time in nature. 11-year-old me would have loved this. Heck, 33-year-old me loves this. But what we try to do is actually we want to get two or three generations out here. So Grandpa is telling the children about how he has been digging for peat and maybe the parents can say they are working in a factory making solar panels 
and the children they know how much energy they need to to load up them cell phones and and whatever so yeah, we want the generation to learn from each other mm, that transfer yeah. of knowledge down the exactly has always been important right so yeah. Yeah. in this new age of trying to get carbon down and and yeah protect biodiversity it's, yeah. it's, it's important that people recognize that journey it's fair to say that bogs are often overlooked as an ecosystem i mean even the name doesn't inspire much bog our indifference has allowed for their exploitation whether it be draining water for farmland, harvesting sphagnum for planters, or mining peat for burning and compost. Thankfully, we finally started realising that this stuff is best left in the ground. The team here are inspiring that change in mindset. So whilst you might not have paid much attention to bogs before, I hope you're starting to see them in a new light now. I'm wishing the four-legged tree trimming team every success in their important work. And perhaps one day soon, the lonely wolf will even be joined by a mate. Wouldn't it be fantastic if one day the Lil Vildemos team achieved their dream of a fenceless landscape, allowing more interactivity between species and habitat? It'll be great if the Danish government acquires more land surrounding this important area too, potentially making northwestern Europe's largest bog even bigger and even boggier. Thanks for joining me for episode 9 of the Rewild podcast. If you're enjoying the series, it's always lovely to hear your comments and reviews from whichever platform you're listening to us from. So please do consider giving us a rating or leaving behind some thoughts. It does make a big difference in reaching new people. It was great to hear of an organisation doing some really ambitious work whilst navigating the mazes of government legislation. At the very least, perhaps you'll look at a mosquito in a new light. And you never know. There might just be some tiny pseudoscorpions clinging to the legs for a free ride. Huge appreciation to Thomas and Jacob for their time in showing me around. I have a real affinity for northern landscapes, so it's nice to see some familiar species along the way. And thanks as always to Andrew O'Donnell of Beluga Lagoon for the tunes, and to Gemma Shooter for the inspiring artwork. Lil Vildemosa is a member of the European Rewilding Network, a collection of groundbreaking initiatives across the continent brought together by Rewilding Europe as part of a broader rewilding movement. This is an organisation making rewilding happen through positive action on the ground. Do join us next month as we travel to the Velabit Mountains in Croatia. Catch you next time.